0: So Kelly gave me the choice of preaching on Jonah or Micah, and I chose Micah because there's some great stuff in this book. And there's a famous passage that everybody loves, and then, so I chose that, so I committed to it, and then I started to read it and realized that it's a dangerous thing uh, to preach from this book, especially... Um, Kevin mentioned in your prayer that we have become accustomed to privilege and entitlement in our society. And as a white, male, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, uh, preaching the book of Micah is like hanging onto a lightning rod in a thunderstorm. It's a dangerous thing. Micah, the prophet himself, was from Moresheth Gath. It was this kind of border village on the edge of Philistine territory would have had a lot of conflict. He may have even been a refugee. And he was a commoner. So he speaks from a different place. He's at the bottom of society, and he's a grassroots kind of guy, and he's coming to challenge the people at the top of society with a message from God. I haven't had that experience. We, many of us, have experienced what ease of life and privilege. Some of you have experienced the other side. So I just want to put that out there that I know uh, there's, some, there's some danger in me preaching this uh, text to you this morning. And let's have that understanding before we uh, get into it. How many of you have a good framework for the Old Testament? If someone asks you, this is again, Kevin, great lead in, in your thoughts. If someone said, uh, uh, give a ready answer. Uh, for your faith, and they said, tell me about the Old Testament. How would you lay it out? Because my multiple attempts to read through the Old Testament usually die in Leviticus or Numbers. If you're on a daily reading plan, it gets pretty sticky in through there. And then if if we do push through and get to the minor prophets, I'm lost sometimes, right? I'm thinking, I don't know. All, all I know is this guy is lambasting the people, but I'm not sure for what uh, and who he's talking about and when he was or where he was or what that has to do with me. So let me give you my simple system for a skeletal structure from, for the Old Testament, and it's kind of silly, but it will stick in your head. So say this with me, Aunt Norma ate my donuts. Okay, so I asked someone years ago um, to come up with an acronym for these two things, and she gave me two. One was Aunt Norma ate my donuts, and the other one was a new approach modeling divinity. And guess which one is easier to remember? Aunt Norma ate my donuts, okay? So say the other one with me, though, too. A new approach modeling divinity. (laughs) Pretty good. One more time. Adam, Noah, Noah. Abraham, Moses, David. Say that with me. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. That's the structure of the main covenants with the people in the Old Testament. And if you can get a framework for the the covenants in your head, then you can place everything else that happens in the Old Testament somewhere in that framework. So to Adam and Eve, it was actually in the context of cursing them for their sin, God makes this promise as well. He says to Eve, actually, you and the serpents, your descendants will have enmity between each other. The serpent will, will strike the heel of your descendants, but your descendant, singular, will crush the head of the snake. Right? Which millennia later, we see that and we think, oh, that's Jesus. He's the one who crushed the head of the serpent. Noah, God rescues Noah and his family from the flood or from the wicked generation, however you look at it. And then he makes this promise to Noah. He said, I'll give you the rainbow sign and I promise I will never destroy the earth in this way again. My will is to protect you. My will is for you to flourish. Okay, blessing. Then you have Abraham, Genesis 12, the first few verses. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you, Abraham, a great nation. More numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And through that nation, or through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he says. Okay, double blessing there. You are going to be a great nation. And through you, all nations will be blessed. There's also some work in that. There's also some partnership, right? Then Moses. So at Mount Sinai... Uh, God gives Moses the law. We know the Ten Commandments are kind of the short form. And then there's this, the whole developed law. And at the end of Deuteronomy, God uh, God says, here, here it is kind of in summary form. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I'm holy, you will be holy. And this is what it looks like. And so he gives them the law. And much of the law was concerned with taking care of, of the vulnerable in society. So you have this trio of, of folks that come up all through the Old Testament. The widows, that's the people whose husbands have died. The orphans, the fathers have died. And the resident aliens, the immigrants among us. These are the people who didn't have a societal protection. So it's hardwired into the law. You will take care of those people, the folks who are suffering, the po- folks who are vulnerable, the folks who are uh, in danger, you will guard them. That's your job, he says, in the law, over and over and over again. You'll leave the corner of your fields you, ungleaned so that they can come along and they'll have something to eat. You're going to protect those who are vulnerable. And then finally, David. In Second Samuel chapter 7, um, David says to God, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, you're not. For one thing, you're a man of blood. So I'm going to give that honor to your son. But for another thing, you're not going to build. Who are you to build a house for me? But David, I'm going to build a house for you. And I'm going to make your throne an everlasting throne. And I'm going to put a king one day on your throne who will rule for all eternity. This is the covenant with David. Okay, so you got it. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. You have all these covenants, these promises, these blessings, and also this this invitation to partner with God to the people of Israel. Micah and the other prophets come along, and what they're doing is calling back the people to remember the promises. Remember what God has promised to bless you with, but also remember what he has called you to do and who he has called you to be. Because you're not doing that right now. You got it? That's the framework. We have to have that in place before. We're going to watch a short video now on Micah. How many of you have seen the Bible project? Do you know what the Bible project is? It's a it's a free resource online. Go to Bibleproject.org. It has videos that kind of summarize all the books of the Bible and then some other themes. It's very well done and it's a great way to get your head around a book. In a short space of time, which is exactly what we're going to do now, looking at Micah. So you're going to have to go to the next one, and then, yeah, you're going to have to, there you go, and just click on it in the center. Perfect. And we'll need sound on that. The book of the prophet Micah.
1: Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter three, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so, most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion. God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now, these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people, and he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love. So he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depth of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about.
0: So there you go. Micah in six minutes. And it's pretty good. What you see in Micah, and they reference this several times, is this pattern of judgment and hope. We might say God's discipline and restoration. Um, I think as a parent, how I think about discipline is guidance. Uh, It's not God sitting up there with his arms crossed waiting to get us when we mess up. It's God giving us purpose and blessing, and then when we don't live into that, sometimes He lets us hurt a bit so that we'll go in the right direction. But his will always is to get us in the right direction and to restore us. It's easy and it's dangerous, I think, to read something like Micah uh, at arm's length and say, oh yeah, that was Micah's warning to the people of Israel and the people of Judah way back then because they were being dumb, right? They were worshiping idols, and they were treating their their poor people badly. But that doesn't have much to do with me. But I think if we were to summarize what's going on in Micah, Micah is saying to the people, look, you have received these tremendous blessings and purpose through the covenants, but you want to receive just the blessing and forget about your participation in it. You're you're confusing blessing with license. You're confusing privilege with entitlement or right. And that's not what God gave you this for. He's calling you to an even higher blessing, which is to participate with him in what he's doing in the world. Through you, all nations will be blessed. Through you, there will be a benevolent king. Through you, people will know what it looks like to live a holy life. And did you catch in this short video... All of those covenants referenced, at least Abraham, Moses, and David were specifically referenced in Micah. The blessing to all nations, the messianic king on the throne, uh, and the call to be holy, and the call to, of judgment because the people were abusing their poor. What that has to do with us, I think, is that we are on the other side of the fulfillment of those covenants. We take this meal every week to commemorate that we are under the new covenant. We are under Christ. And the blessing of being part of Christ's body far outweighs all of the previous covenants. And then I think equally or proportionately, the calling for us to participate in what Christ is about in the world is there. And I think it's the long history of the church to go through these cycles of um, entitlement and then failure and then restoration. Over and over we've seen that in our history. And the enemies of Christianity like to hold on to the times that we've failed, the times that we've used our power and abused it. But we know that the long story for us is that God restores, that He gives hope, that He will take even our failures and work powerfully through them. That's the story for us. So what I want to I guess just leave with you this morning is a couple questions. Uh, if you were here for the Bible class, you heard John Ortberg talking about Dallas Willard defining kingdom as the effective extent of our will, meaning if you want something to happen, In what sphere can you make that happen? I can more or less with my kids. It's shaky. depends on the day, right? Or in our families. Uh, If you have a position of power in your workplace, how you spend your money is an expression of your kingdom, right? Our our little kingdoms. Uh, What we fight for and what we fail to fight against, those are expressions of our influence and kingdom, right? Those are the things I think that Micah was calling the people of Israel and Judah to pay attention to because they were using their power and their privilege to exploit. And so he asked them this question that we use. It's a great t-shirt, right? Uh, Micah 6.8, uh, which says, this is in the courtroom scene where God is um, calling the people to account and the people respond to god and say well what do you want from us you want our money you want our land you want our first fruits you want even our firstborn children and god responds and says he has shown you O man what is good and what does the lord require of you but to just to act justly to love mercy or hesed and to walk humbly with your god and in this case it's not a great t-shirt that's the charge that the prosecution is putting towards the defense He said, all I want from you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, and you're not doing any of those things. Instead, you're being unjust toward those within your power. You're calloused and cold, and you're proud. So I go back to the beginning. This is a dangerous text for us to preach, especially for me, a child of privilege, in a culture that experience a great amount of privilege. But I think what God is calling us to is to take seriously our part in his covenant through Christ. At the end of Ephesians 1, uh, Paul's kind of prayer and long blessing for the Ephesians, he says, God has appointed Christ all authority over everything for the church, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. We sang that song a minute ago. That's a mighty calling for us to be Christ in the community, not just to enjoy the privilege of salvation or the privilege of fellowship or the privilege of the hope of what's coming, but also to participate. That's Micah's call on us, I think. Let's pray. God, thank you for leaving us uh, an amazing legacy that is rich and nuanced uh, and deep, that we can look uh, into Micah's words 2,700 years ago and see your heart. Uh, That while you are willing sometimes to punish us, to bring us in line, that your heart for us is hope and restoration, partnership, love, that you do want us to be people who do justice, who love kindness, who walk with humility. So God, my prayer this morning is that we can be that. Where that is already happening, God, uh, strengthen it. Help us recognize it and celebrate it. Where we're still rebelling, uh, God, please give us malleable hearts uh, that don't need stern punishment, but that are attentive to your will uh, so that we can be better followers. uh, So that through us, the nations around us would be blessed, the nations in our midst. uh, Through us, People could look and say, oh, that's what holiness looks like. That's what God's people look like. Uh, and through us, ultimately, they would come to know the kingdom. Jesus, we pray this in your Son, in your name. Amen. One of
1: the things that seems to be the case with, with Israel, and it certainly is expressed by Micah and by others of the minor prophets, is that they simply were not living as if God was there, as if he was real, if he was real to them. And the song that we sing, uh, we've been singing for years, certainly mentions the fact that God is there and it's to him that we need uh, to respond.